It is my delight to say if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Acts. And so uh, this morning we were jumping, I, I say we're not really jumping into Acts, so I'm I've got, a, I've got an incredible uh, duty, responsibility this morning. My job is to recap, which means in the next 40 minutes, I'm going to recap 14 chapters that took us two and a half years to get through. Uh, and so, anyway, I promise we won't be here past three. Uh, but uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts there. We'll kind of skim through things some Acts, but also turn to the book of Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Uh, and then... Hang out there, and then I'll get there in a minute. Uh, a few announcements. First of all, if you're a guest with us, thank you so much for, for being here with us this morning. Uh, when you came in, uh, you should have received one of these uh, bulletins. If not, there's some in the back. Uh, it gives us some information about what's going on in the church, but also on the bottom, there's an I'm new here section. Uh, you can do this one or two ways where you can fill this out. Uh, and on the back, there's different options that maybe you want more information about the church or small groups. Uh, or there, Actually, there's other there you can write in. You can... Fill that out, tear it off, and put it in the giving box in the back. Or you can scan that QR code there, and it'll take you to an online form to be able to do that, which will uh, come to my email. And so anyway, please do that. A few announcements. First of all, uh, small groups kicked off last week, but it's not too late for you to sign up for a small group. And so uh, maybe you're interested in small groups. You don't necessarily know how to get connected to one. I know with small groups, uh, there can be intimidating sometimes for, for, for a lot of people when they come to a church, there's kind of a natural end to a small group, as in, you know somebody that goes to this small group and you end up there. But for some of us, we show up at Cross Point and we don't really know anybody and we need help getting connected to a small group, and we would love to be able to help you do that. And so uh, you can do, you can scan, uh, scan that QR code on the bottom where the I'm new here is there and put, put there on the online uh, form or on the, the people in places table, the table to the right, there's a sign-up sheet there where you can write your name and your number and one of the pastors will contact you and try to get you connected somewhere to a small group. And so uh, please do that uh, next Saturday as our prayer meeting that Ms. Felita will be leading. It's 8 a.m. in here. And so if you can, please be here for that. Uh, on September the 10th at 2 p.m., uh, the church is doing a baby shower for Jenny Fennell. Jenny, raise your hand over there. That's Jenny. Uh, and so at uh, 2 o'clock on September the 10th, uh, they're doing a baby shower at their residence in Ellisville. Uh, she's registered at Baby List. Is that right? Sure. She don't know. She's registered at Baby List. And so anyway, uh, please make plans to be there. Last announcement is uh, next Sunday. Uh, so this is kind of housekeeping for a little bit. Uh, our pledge cards, if you're a member of CP, next Sunday is our uh, when we're turning in our pledge cards. We have received, uh, I think, five or six of them already. Uh, and so uh, if you can't be here next Sunday, please make plans. Maybe do it today or before next Sunday. Uh, that way we can uh, get them up. And so what we're doing with these, just to bring us up to, uh, uh, to, to present day, is that uh, we will take these and we were using these to be able to project from, from uh, August or September 1st of 2023 to August 31st, 2024. This is our projection how much money we will have come in uh, to be able to move forward with our buildings. And so this is, if we've ever called you to give at, as a member of CP, 
uh, above and beyond your tithes, this is it. And we all know that there's a need that we have. And the only way we're going to meet that need is us meeting that need together. So keep praying for that. And hopefully next week you can turn that card in. We'll, we'll know where we are. And we, can, we can't move forward until we know where we are. And so please help us know where we are. And I trust that the Lord is going to, to bless us. The last one is that there's ministry teams uh, that we've mentioned before. If you're interested in serving in any of those ministry teams uh, or need to know what the more they're more about than the people in place table, the table to the left, uh, there is a sign-up sheet there. You can write your name, your phone number, and if you don't have an idea of what you want to do, write anything or contact me, and we will get in contact with you. Cool. I think that's all of my announcements. All right. This morning, we are, like I said, we are doing a recap of where we have been over the past two years. Next week, Luke will stand up and he'll start in Acts 15. He'll be in Acts 15 for two weeks, but up until then, I know uh, that for some of us, even me, even though I preached majority of the sermons up to this point, there's still, I, I have to think back, all right, where did, you know, I have a little bit of where, where, what was going on in Acts 6 or Acts 5 or what's brought us to this point. So we just kind of need a refresher as we're getting back into Acts to kind of where we were when we ended. Uh, but for some of us, you've joined or you've kind of got on the ship uh, after the fact, like you, you haven't been in Acts at all with us. And so I want to bring you up to speed that way next Sunday, you kind of know where we are. Uh, and so I want to start with the very generic way in saying this, is that when, when the book of Acts, we believe that it was one volume with the book of Luke. The Gospel of Luke and Acts was, was one book that, that Luke had written. Uh, and so what, what Luke's purpose for the Gospel of Luke was is the same purpose for the book of Acts. And so we see it in two different volumes, but we believe it was like part of one work. And so in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, uh, to verse 4, we read this, and this is Luke giving his intent and in writing this, this letter, this book of what we know as the book of Luke and the book of Acts. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were our witnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most, most excellent Theophilus. And here's the reason why he's writing it, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke is writing an orderly account. He said, I've, I've witnessed of all of these things, and I'm writing this, Theophilus, and upon reading this, that Theophilus would be certain about the things that he has been taught. What that means is, is we don't know a lot about Theophilus, but the things he's been taught about Jesus ascending, the things he's been taught about the, the Holy Spirit descending, the things he's been talking about, actually in the gospel, the, who, who Jesus was in his earthly ministry, Luke's intent and his purpose was upon reading this letter or reading this book, that he would grow certain of the things that he's been taught. And I think for all of us, no matter how much we've been in church or how much Bible we know, there are times in which our certain tank, if you will, leaks. Uh, that there are times in which our doubts may creep in or things that we have that our, our reality is, is challenging what we know to be true. And what we need is to be certain of things at times. We need to be recertain, if you will, if that's even a word. Uh, and so uh, Nana says no, but it's my word today. It's recertain. Uh, certain again. Uh, anyway, and so my goal is, is that as we walk through the text this morning, over 14 chapters, that we will grow in certainty the things that we know to be true and what we've been taught. That for you, me and you as a believer, that we will be growing certainty that we know that Jesus is alive. 
uh, that Jesus has ascended, that he he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he sits in all absolute authority and power and uh, dominion, if you will. He is the Lord of all. He's the Savior of the universe. And I hope that as we walk through the book of Acts, or walk through a recap this morning, that the believer, you will be reminded that Jesus is alive. And for the unbeliever, I hope that you are confronted with the fact that the one who said he was the Savior of the world that came to die for the sins of all humanity was resurrected by the Father. Now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is the judge of the living and the dead, that regardless of if you believe in him or not, the reality is that he is the Savior of the universe, and whether you will have to deal with him now or deal with him later. Jesus is alive. We are certain of that. So I believe this, and this is how I'm going to break this down. Go to the new logo. Uh, we we kind of refresh. I say we. Uh, Luke Campbell refreshed because it's been so long since we've been in Acts. And so if you would be reminded, if you're, if you're a guest with us, the way that we kind of summarize, not a good word, but a great picture, a snapshot of the book of Acts is these arrows up, down, and out. And so what we see in chapter 1, right, is that, the, that Jesus ascended. He, he went and he, uh, the Father brought him back home, if you will, and he sat down on the right hand of the Father. We see in chapter 2 what? That the Holy Spirit descended and we went and the church is born. And then from there, the church is sent out. And so we see uh, from 3 through 14 to where we've been is the, is the, the reality of the Spirit is, is descended and the church is being sent out. So this morning, the way that I want to do a recap is I want to use these three arrows in which there was certainty about these arrows. Obviously, the the apostles weren't thinking about the arrows, but for us, in our mind's eye, I want to use this. So if you're taking notes, number one, what certainty did Luke want Theophilus to have? He wanted him to have certainty that the Lord Jesus is alive, ascended, seated, and soon to return. That if you, if you pin through, I'm going to walk, I'm not going to walk through, I'm going to skim through the first 14 chapters, and we're going to see just how certain the apostles were that Jesus was alive, that he had ascended, that he was seated, that he was soon to return. That what drove them, one of the main things that drove them in their efforts and their devotion to the Lord is that these were guys, for the most part, who walked with Jesus in his earthly ministry. They saw Jesus die, which wrecked their world. But thanks be to God, they saw Jesus resurrected. And upon seeing the resurrected Jesus, their lives were never the same. They're, 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 what, they, what they saw out of their lives was never going to be the same because they were certain that Jesus was alive. Not only did they see him alive, but they saw him get caught up into the clouds. They saw him be ascended. And we understand later on in Acts that we are taught that they knew that the Lord would say to his Lord, sit down at my right hand. They knew that he was seated, and they knew that as he was seated, it was a session of Christ, that there was something going on, that God the Father was doing something while the Son was being seated. But they also found out in Acts chapter 1, whenever they were looking up into the clouds, the angel said, hey, just like he went, he's also going to come back. The way you see him go, and he's also going to be returning that way. They believed with certainty that Jesus was alive, that he was ascended, that he had seated, and he was soon to return. We see it all through the book of Acts. And so here's going to be important to have your Bible with you. I'm not going to hang out in just one passage. It's going to be on the screen. So if you have a Bible, let's just look at a few of these. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. 
It says, while they were staying there, they ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. And he said you, that you had heard me. And, and, and so they, they had talked to Jesus, and they went and waited on Jesus. We see it in chapter 8, verse 11, that they, they, they saw Jesus, and Jesus had opened their minds to see things. And then they, they, the Scripture says they actually saw him ascended. It was something that they saw with their own eyes. We see it in chapter 2, verse 23. Whenever Peter is preaching for the first time, and this is what he says, This Jesus delivered according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of the lawless man, but God raised him up and loosed the pains of death, for it was not possible for him to be held by it. They were confident not only was he alive, but that he had been resurrected. They saw his ascension. We see it in chapter 2, verse 32 and verse 30 through 36. It says, this is beautiful. In verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted. Exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. They were certain the fact that he was, he was alive. They were certain in the fact that he was, he was ascended, and they were certain that God had set him set him down in the right hand at his right hand. They were certain of these things. And it impacted the way that they lived their life. You keep going and you get to chapter uh, 3. Peter looks at the man who's lame and says, in the name of Christ, get up Rise up and walk. We see it in chapter 3, verse 15, whenever he's preaching again. It says, You killed the author of life, and God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name, by the faith in his name, he has made this man strong, whom you see and know in the faith that is through Jesus. We see that they were certain of these things. Go to chapter 4, begin verse 10. Let it be known to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom what? God raised from the dead. Chapter 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers uh, raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. That God exalted him where? At his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and for the forgiveness of sins. This is, we are witnesses to these things so is the Holy Spirit from whom God has given to those who obey him. And flip to chapter 7. When Stephen is finishing up his destruction of the religious leaders, uh, he says this in verse 53. You, uh, he says, sorry, verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. But look at verse 54. It says, Now when they had heard these things, they were raised and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, he was full of spirit. What did he do? He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus, what? Standing at the right hand of God. They were certain that he was alive, that he ascended, that he was at the right hand of God. Go to chapter 9. Three, chapter 9 is a story in which when Saul is converted, and who does he meet than none other than the Lord, the alive, the Lord Jesus himself. And it says, why are you persecuting me? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. We see it uh, in chapter 10. 
with the story of Peter and Cornelius that he's preaching Jesus. We see it. Uh, I'm, I'm ahead of myself somewhere, all these small numbers. Chapter 9, yeah. Uh, then we get to chapter 10 with Peter and Cornelius. Then we get to the verse uh, 39 of chapter 10 whenever we read and we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on the tree. But what? But God raised him on the third day and made him appear to each and all of us. And chapter, uh, go to chapter 13, when this will be the last one that I'll do. But in chapter 13, verses 28 through 31, this is him preaching as well. And he says, uh, this would be uh, Paul preaching. And he says, in verse 28, and and though they found no guilt in him worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And they had carried out all that was written of him. They took him down from the tree and they laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to us. And we are all now witnesses. People say, Justin, what's going on here? When, when I believe when Luke wrote this to Theophilus, he wanted him to be confident and certain the fact that Jesus is alive. That the Father... He's back to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, growing certainty with that. What does that mean? What does it mean Jesus is alive? Listen to me, church. This wants to encourage you. That means he's victorious. That means everything that he claimed to be, he proved that he was. Every crazy, far-fetched thing that he said about himself in the Gospels, because he's alive, that means it's true. He was rather crazy, or he, said, he, said he was who he says he was, and he's alive, so it means he is, he is victorious. What else does that mean? We see it in chapter 4, verse 12, that because he's alive, because everything he claimed to be, his resurrection proves. That's why Peter could say in chapter 4, verse 12, and there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among man which we must be saved. What does it mean that Jesus is alive? Is that he and he alone has the power to save. There is no other name that we can find where we could find salvation. Matter of fact, Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter 2. Says being bound, being bound, found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, because of that death, because of the purchase, because of the payments, is therefore God has highly exalted him and what and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. What's that name? The one that Peter says in chapter four, verse twelve: that "There is no other name which man can be saved." He was given it to him because of his resurrection, his defeat of death. And it says that every at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What is it? What's the implications that Jesus is alive is that he is victorious. He's all-powerful. And as no matter what world we live in and they become less tolerant about Christ, the Scripture still says that by Christ and his name alone can man be saved. Regardless of the tide of of culture or the spirit of the age, whatever, whatever it is, the good book says that is, there is no other name, and I'm certain of that. Regardless of how I feel, regardless of how it may be received, Luke wrote to Theophilus, and I said, you need to be certain of the things you've been taught. Hey, Jesus is alive. He ascended, and he sat down at the right hand. 
He ascended. What does that mean for me and you? That means he took humanity to glory. That means that he came and he put, he put on flesh in the incarnation and then he was raised in a, in a new body. And it's a Psalm 24. Who is this king of glory? The king brought humanity into the very throne room for the first time, which now means there's access for me and you. That the veil's been torn and now there's access to the very throne room of God because he ascended. He brought home the victory, if you will. It wasn't just something earthly that he took it back home. He, he, he brought back his, his nail-pierced hands, if you will, into glory. Not only is he alive and ascended, but he is seated. What does that mean? What is that? Why, why should I be certain about that? Why would that why, how could that impact the way that I live my life? That means he has absolute authority. That the wind doesn't blow without his permission. The sun doesn't set where it, or rise where it comes up and set where it sets without the very authority. Listen to me. If you believe it or not, your lungs don't catch another breath without his authority. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And what we learn whenever Peter is preaching in chapter 2, and it says when he's seated, what's happening is, is that out of a psalm that we read is that the Father is making the enemies his footstool. So not only is he seated, but he's got a footstool. What's, what does that mean? Is that God is making his enemies his footstool as in that whenever he's seated now, those who, uh, those who deny, those who are the enemies of God, primarily right now through the preaching of the gospel, those who are in domains of darkness, when they're transferred out of the domain of darkness into the, to the light, there is an enemy becoming a footstool as people respond and repent to the gospel and claim Jesus as Lord. That the work of the gospel, God is making the enemies the Lord's footstool. And ultimately, we'll do it in his wrath. So he's seated. He has absolute authority. And while he's being seated, God is doing the work of making enemies his footstool. But the scripture also tells us because he's seated, he's the intercessor for the believer. Be certain of this. That he's alive. He's ascended, he's seated at the round of the Father, and Scripture teaches us that his work day and night, night and day, yes, we praise him, but he's the advocate, he's the intercessor for those who follow and believe in him. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says, Who is to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What's my hope in life and death? Obviously, it's the blood and the finished work of Christ, but that Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father and is interceding on my behalf. 1 John 2, 1 says, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have one who's speaking on our behalf. They're mine. Hebrews 7, 24 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. How could us being certain that Christ only died but rose again, he was alive and 
ascended but seated is that in his seating is his, his high priestly office where he is interceding on our behalf. He's our advocate to the Father, which is, <laughs> this, is <laughs> this is a beautiful picture. You know what one of the terms that Scripture gives our enemy, the devil, the great accuser of the brother? Anybody ever experienced being the, the accusement of the brother? As in, maybe you find yourself in shambles because sin in your own life, and all you hear is whispering in your ear, you don't believe in Jesus. It's not worth it. Accusing the brethren of, of being not what God has made them. There's a accusing that causes doubt and guilt. So in one sense, you have an idea that we have a great enemy who's the accuser who accuses the brethren of, of their own sin and their own guilt and their own faults. But we have a greater, greater hate that's in me than he that's in the world. The fact that not only do we have an accuser, but we have an advocate in heaven. The very Lord Jesus himself who says, they're mine. They've been purchased with my blood. They have been made white as snow through the regeneration, the washing of sins. We need to be certain of that, y'all. Why don't we read Scripture so that we can be certain of these things? Not only are they certain that he's alive and that he ascended and he's seated, but they were certain that he would return soon. Why were they certain? Well, A, he told them, but B, that angel said, hey, just like you saw him, he's going to be coming back the same way. I would believe him too. And so they lived each and every day as if today he would come, as in they lived with an expectancy that Christ would return. And this time when he returned, he wasn't coming as a humble Galilean carpenter. He was coming as a ruling, reigning, victorious king with a name that's above every name, right? Like he's coming and he's returning and, and he's going to make every wrong right. And every, but the, the, the reality is, that I'm not saying we know when and, and where and how, but we understand Scripture teaches that we shouldn't be oblivious to the things that are going around, that, that we understand that, that there's a promise he will return. And Jesus talked so much about his second coming, the second advent, if you will. And they were certain. They didn't know when. They didn't know how. But they were certain that he was coming. Why? Because he told them he would be. And I know we're a couple thousand years removed. And we go, man, where's he been? I can't answer the question. But I can tell you this, that if they, thought they were close, then it's been 2,000 years, then we're way closer than they were. There's my smart mind and understanding things. So live with that certainty and those things, live with those certainties that he's alive, that he's ascended, he's seated, that he returned. Man, that should impact the way we live life, the way we, it gives us perspective and walking through life and its trials. So they were confident. Error number one, up, they were confident he's alive, ascended, and seated. But the second thing, I think there could be certainty that we see over the course of the book of Acts is they were, there's certainty that the Holy Spirit has descended that he is active and, joy, and enjoys every believer empowering them, them to do what God has called them to do. Everybody with me? This is if we're reading the first 14 chapters. Here's my, my first summary is this. He's alive. He ascended. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And currently the Father is making the enemy, his enemies his footstool. The second thing that we understand, looking through the first 14 chapters that the Spirit descended, the Spirit is very active. 
and he enjoys every believer to empower them to do what God's called them to do. And I'll give you some examples. Everybody got your Bible? Go back to chapter 1 or chapter 2. You ready? Chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, said that they were ordered to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Spirit. Um, wait for the promise of the Father, which is what? The Spirit. I'm sorry, that's chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. So we see on day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came, and whenever he came, immediately they began speaking not in crazy languages, but in languages of other natives there, and they began to preach the gospel and people were hearing in their own language, and thousands come to know Jesus. So the Spirit descended, and it empowered them to do that. Get verse chapter 4, verse 31. You read this a lot. Well, here, after they arrested for the first time, and they're set out, and they go pray, pray for boldness. And then we see in verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were what? Filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They will underline that word boldness there, because that's going to come up in a little bit as well. Is that they, we can be certain that the Spirit descended, He's active, and He's empowering, because... We understand that there's a difference between indwellment and being indwelled by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. And so if you haven't been with us, you'll see oftentimes that Peter is filled with the Spirit. Well, I thought he was filled with the Spirit of salvation. Yes, we are. And the analogy we use, yes, we're filled with the Spirit, but we leak. Right? Not in a salvific term, but in a sense in which at the moment of salvation, I am indwelled by the Spirit of God. I'm signed, sealed, delivered. And the, the Scriptures of the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of my future a reward. He seals me with the Spirit to never lose. I'm eternally secure being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But being filled is more of a submission to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, right? We can all testify we know we've been indwelled by the Spirit. There's times we're definitely not walking by the Spirit. Anybody with me? That's what it means to be filled by the Spirit, that we, we, we surrender, we submit to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So what you're about to begin to see is that over and over again, these dudes are what? Filled with the Spirit or by the Spirit. Uh, chapter 4, 31, we read that. Chapter 5, verse 19. Not only were they filled, but it says, During the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. So I have to understand this is an angel through the work and action of the Holy Spirit that Peter is in... Uh, the apostles are, are freed. There's a, we see that in chapter 5, uh, verse 32. And it says, When we are witness to these things, so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. So there's something we learned about the Holy Spirit. Who gets the Holy Spirit? Those who what? Obey. So specifically you know, in salvation here, so anyone who obeys, anyone who, who obeys the call to salvation is what? The Holy Spirit is given to them. It's a gift. The Holy Spirit here is a gift, and all those who obey receive the Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 5. Stephen, we see, was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, as in not only was he indwelled, but he was also being led, he was being enabled to do what God had called him to do. Chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, the power would be uh, the full of the Spirit, the Spirit's power in his life. It wasn't Stephen's power, it was his power, or the God's power, the Holy Spirit's power. Chapter 6, verse 
10, it says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit in which he was speaking. Chapter 7, verse 55. This is Stephen when he's about to be stoned. He, what, full of the what? Holy Spirit. Chapter 8, we see it uh, in the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Two random dudes who never saw each other day in their life end up meeting in the backside of a desert randomly with one of them reading the prophet Isaiah. Saying, man, I, what does this mean? It's the Holy Spirit. He's active. The idea of God building his kingdom isn't just predicated on the fact that the church is going to be going. It's like, before we go, the Spirit's already active. Spirit's already roaming the earth, if you will. He's already doing, orchestrating the work of the Father. Chapter 8, verse 17, And they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is the Samaritans uh, receiving the Holy Spirit. Chapter 9, we see the conversion of Saul, that the Spirit was leading Ananias and Paul. We see it. In chapter 10, with Peter and Cornelius' dream, the, the, the Spirit is active and orchestrating Peter having this dream. At the same time, there was going to be these people who Cornelius sent knocking on his door while he was upstairs trying to have lunch. It's not random. It's the Holy Spirit active. Chapter 11, verse 24. Speaking of Barnabas, that he was... Uh, a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. We see the Spirit working in the Peter being rescued from jail in chapter 12. We see it in 13, probably the most explicit way that we see this. And what? This is whenever Paul and Barnabas are about to be sent off in chapter 13 for their first missionary journey. It says they were, chapter 13, verse 1, now there was in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, the Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping in the Lord and fasting, who said what? The Holy Spirit said. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they had laid their hands on them and sent them all, verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. 13.52. This is them leaving Iconium, or going to Iconium towards the end of the journey. Says the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So Justin, that's a lot of references. Why? You and I can read this letter and be certain not only did Jesus die, raise again, ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, but we, what he, he, who, he, who he promised would come came. The Holy Spirit descended. We can be certain of that. Of all the things we, there's so many things in life we can't be certain about. But there are two things that we see in the book of Acts is that Jesus is victorious. He's at the right hand of the Father. And the third person of the Trinity has now been sent to earth. You can could, you could say like this, the Gospels are like the, the coming to earth of the Son of God. The book of Acts is the coming to earth of the Spirit of God. That the book of Acts is what happened whenever the, the Son of Man went up and the Spirit of God came down. The Holy Spirit descended, which means the promise of Jesus that the Helper would come. To carry out the work of the Father. We see all through the text that he's active. He's orchestrating the Father's wills. He is lining up people's paths. He's speaking to them in dreams. He's leading saints as they flee persecution. Chapter 13, 
we see that he, like you said, he indwells all believers and helps empower us to walk in obedience to God and boldness and faithfulness. What we see in the text is that he gives us words to say in times of need. Jesus told Peter when he stood before religious leaders not to be worried about what to say because at that time it won't be you speaking, but the Holy Spirit speaking through you. He convicts us of sin. He leads us to righteousness and truth. And so we can be certain, child of God, upon reading the book of Acts, definitely in the four, first 14 chapters, that Jesus is alive, but the Spirit is active in our lives. How does the rubber hit the road for me? Is this, I 100% believe this, that you are where you are, not on accident. You work where you work, even though it may be miserable for a season, you are where you are by the sovereignty of God. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is just as active today as he was when we read these pages. And what that means is there are people you work with, there are people you go to the ball fields with, there are people who maybe even get on your nerves that maybe, maybe the Spirit's actually actively working to place you in their life so that you can share the good news of the gospel with them. He's active. But the good news is when he descended, not only did he just come to the earth, but he came and he and now he indwells every single one of you, which means the thing that you've been called to. He also empower you to do because he indwells inside of you. Whatever task you may feel like the Lord has given you, whatever you feel rather to how big or small it is, it's not because of you that you can do it, but the very spirit of God that's in you that enables you to do that thing he called you to do. The pressure's off of you. So what do we do? We just submit to him and be filled by him and walk with the Spirit. And he will accomplish the task in which he's called us to do. You can be certain of that. The question isn't how much of the Spirit do you have as a believer. It's the question of how much of you does the Spirit have. It's because how much are we submitting to him, surrendering to him to be filled by him. But I want to encourage you that these, when they get to Acts chapter 1, these dudes are lost. Messiah's, he, he's here, but he's about to go. And when he, that, that, what probably seemed like three years between his ascension and the Spirit's descent was probably they're going, okay, I don't know, really know what's going here. So they, they, they replaced Judas and they're just kind of waiting. Could you imagine the length of time there? So you take these dudes, Peter, the last thing we had of him when the gospels closed is that he just dropped the ball, denied Jesus three times, got rebuked on the shore, but told him he's going to die eventually for the gospel. That's all we knew of him. He was weak. There was a servant girl on the night Jesus was crucified who asked him if he knew Jesus. And Peter said, no, I don't know that guy. He was scared of a little girl. Get to chapter 1 of Acts, they're still kind of certain. They're just kind of waiting around. And something happens in chapter 2 that emboldens these dudes. Not only did they see Jesus raised, but the very Spirit of God went in them. These men who used to be weak and, and soft and faithless now become bold and faithful and face death. Why? Because they were certain that the Holy Spirit was in, empowering them and carrying them to do the very thing that maybe seemed over their head, but God called them to do it and that God would use them to do it if they would just submit to that Spirit. That's what you can learn from the first 14 chapters. Some bunch of nobodies who dropped the ball all the time. Somehow, someway, they got out of the way and God got the glory. Thirdly, I've got to wrap this thing up. Upon reading the book of Acts, Theophilus would have been certain that God has sent the church to preach the gospel, to build the church, and live bold and faithful lives. 
And I know I said to build the church would build the church. And so let me clarify that when I get there. Don't judge me already. I know guys who builds the church, but we'll get there. Sometimes I like to put stuff in there just so you go. We see it in Acts. Go back to chapter 1. We see it in Acts 1, verse 8. But you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit uh, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will what, be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria at the end of the earth. That's really the only one we have to read. <laughs> That's instructions from our Lord saying, hey, you'll be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. Once the Holy Spirit comes. You see it in 2.42. Not only were they to be, this is the, the building of the church. When I'm saying that, I'm not talking about specifically like I know God is who builds his body but there's a sense in which there's a he's the builder we're the stewards uh, we're called to build one another up we're called to take care of one another to bear one another's burdens we talked about that last week even the burden of our own sin that there's a building that happens we see it in chapter 2 verse 42 that the church these these believers they're devoting themselves to the apostles teaching which would be the doctrine there the fellowship they're hanging out with one another they're breaking the bread the lord's supper and prayers they're praying and and every soul is coming i mean all is coming among every soul and they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and giving them to the poor god had called them to preach the gospel but also to build the church we see that happen big time when we get to 4:30 beginning of verse 32 that they're all selling everything they had to take care of the one who did it that they were called to preach the gospel, but to love God's people, ultimately is what I'm saying. We get to chapter 6, there's issues because the apostles are out preaching and they can't, don't have time to, to take care of the, the Hellenists, the, the widows. And so what do they do? They elect men to be called up to take care of those needs. There's this love for the building up and the taking care of God's people. Chapter 8, verse 4. This is after Stephen is killed and Saul is ravaging the church. It says, now, those they were scattered. So this isn't the apostles at this moment. This ain't the professionals. It says, as they were scattered... Uh, now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. As in, not, we're not talking about Peter, James, and John. We're talking about everybody who's a follower of Jesus. As they're running, as they're fleeing, what are they doing? They are preaching the word. Literally, they are proclaiming the gospel. And they, they were, because you would imagine, somebody, if somebody random just shows up in a community, they were pretty tight-knit back then. They were, what are you doing here? And they say, well, we believe in this guy named Jesus. And because of that, we're running for our lives. Would you like to sign up? But as they were going, they were proclaiming the good news. We see it in Saul's purpose to be a light unto the Gentiles, to preach to the Gentiles. We see it uh, on the missionary journeys when we get to chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, what it says, to, to, to set them apart for the work which I have called them. Chapter 13, verse 32 And we bring you the good news that what God had promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us, their children, by the raising of Jesus. The apostles believed, not only Paul and Silas, they were confident on their missionary journey. They were certain, not probably about where they were going to sleep at night or where they were going to eat. They were certain of what? 
that God had called them to go. And I'll confess to you, even in, in professional and, you know, vocational ministry at times, things could get tough and I could question and not be certain about many things. But one thing I can be certain of is that God called me to this and that God called me here. And oftentimes with me and not just me, but in your life, there are things that we may not be certain about. But one thing I am certain about, the one, <laughs> the one thing that the Holy Spirit doesn't have to lead you to do is to preach the gospel. Why? Because Christ has already told you to do that. Hey, we are certain of that, that we're called, the church is called to go and preach the gospel. There's no greater calling or responsibility. God builds his church through the preaching of the gospels. Enemies become footstools through the preaching of the gospel. And what we understand as far as no man can be saved without the preaching of the gospel. And it's not just in the pulpit. It's where we go. It's what we see in the book of Acts. That as they were going, they were preaching the gospel. We're all called to the same, and God has called us to build the church. Obviously, we know he's building, but we're the stewards. As in the, the goal of church, of a healthy church, and building the church is not just butts and seat, but, but, but health in our churches. Discernment in our churches, the education, if you will, the discipline, discipleship, where we know the Word of God, that we love the Word of God, that we love God's people, and we're all about Sharing God's good news. That's the mark of a, of a church being built. Not just started, not just growing attendance, not just putting butts in seats, not just being an entertainment venue, but building a church means that we're preaching the gospel and the church is growing in maturity for the glory of the Lord. I think it... Gosh, you see it all throughout Acts. They committed themselves to teaching. They were taking care of each other's needs. They were confronting one another. They were building one another up. And that call is just not theirs. It's ours as well. To preach the good news, but invest into God's people that we build one another up. This, this pledge card is, is less about let's build a fancy building. It's about that we can have a venue, a place in which we can better build one another up through discipleship through for generations to come. Not just maintaining buildings that should have been burned 17 years ago, but to build out into the future so that we have a legacy today to 15 years from now that our children's children are still being taught the word of God at Cross Point Church. We're called to build one another up. In Acts 9, 31, man, if there could be anything that would describe us, I wish it could be this. In Acts 9, 31, it says that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, they had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And, this, and it multiplied. <laughs> Is there a better, could there be a better, like, dream for a church? A focus for a church that, that we would have peace. That would be being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit. And the church is doing that. What happens? It multiplies. Where am I end on this before we take the Lord's Supper together? Is that we look at this passage, we look at the 14 chapters, and we'll continue to look at it. And I hope we're kind of coming up to speed here. Is that... The work of Jesus and the work of the Spirit with 
12 guys really, you know, who were certain that those things were true and certain that God had called them to do something. God took half-hearted, lazy, fearful, sell-you-out-in-a-heartbeat men and made them the lives of boldness and faithfulness even in the midst of their lives being taken away from them. <laughs> That's what that certainty can do. That he's alive and the spirit is descended. Because that's the, that's the two things that changed from the end of the Gospels to the beginning of Acts. Obviously, we know at the end of, in, in the book of Luke, I think, towards the end of Luke, that Jesus kind of like connects Old Testament dots for these guys. So there was understanding of the Old Testament that drove them. What were the two main things that radically changed these guys' lives? They knew Jesus was alive. They ascended and he, he sat down. And the Holy Spirit was empowering them to do whatever God called them to do. So no, no matter come, come feast or famine, they're going to be faithful and they're going to be bold, even if it costs them their life. Man. I don't know if Theophilus... I don't know if he's a smart guy or not, but or how much, how many times he read the letter. But I believe upon reading that letter, he would have been certain that Jesus is who he says he is. The Spirit is alive in all of us, and we're called to do this. And God will enable us and carry us and empower us to do all of those things. I'm going to pray for us, and then John Ryan's going to come up with the band. You can go ahead and come up too. But this morning, if you're a guest with us, we are taking of the Lord's Supper. And so the way that we do our Lord's Supper, we take it once a month on months that uh, are like an odd number, like January, March. We take it on the third week, uh, months that are in even numbers, like August, we take it on the fourth week. And so this is four, God, fourth, fourth week already. Uh, it, it, it snuck up on me. I, I remember this Friday that it was the fourth week, which means we're doing Lord's Supper. And so anyway, you don't have to be a member at Cross Point to take the Lord's Supper with us. Uh, the only thing we ask is that you are born again, that you have placed your faith in Jesus, um, that you have trusted in him and him alone for salvation. Um, we're doing catechisms at the house, and we're to the one now where we're asking questions to the girls. I'm ask the girls, uh, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? And the answer is to trust in him alone for salvation. And so have you trusted in him alone for salvation? Um, you can watch Kelly and her cool ride there. Uh, if you have, then you're welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us. Uh, we, in Luke introduced a way in which, a manner in which we uh, take the Lord's Supper. And so each, each time we take it, we're going to throw this on the screen, Paul. And so how do we take the Lord's Supper here at CP? Because uh, we don't want it to ever become just something we do to say we did. There is a, a temptation to do that, right? Because the easy thing was we never hardly ever took the Lord's Supper before, and so now we're just going to take it all the time to say that we did that we're better than we used to be. We don't want to get to that point. Every time we take it, we want it to be a new, a fresh. Uh, and so uh, the only thing that's weird about it is we still have COVID cups, and we can explain those to you in a little bit if you haven't taken the Lord's Supper with us before. Uh, and so what we're going to do in our mind's eye and our hearts uh, the, the, the depth of our heart is, first of all, in taking the Lord's Supper, we look back. 
and remembrance of Jesus, the very thing he told us to do this in what? Remembrance of me. We look back, and I know today we've been talking about what happened after his resurrection, but without a death, there is no resurrection. Without death, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And the very Son of Man poured out his soul, his blood, and eventually even his spirit so that you and I can gather today as a redeemed people, as a forgiven people, not of anything that we've done, simply by the finished work of Christ. And so we take the Lord's Supper, we, we look back in that remembrance. So, you know, we weren't there, but in our mind's eye, here's the good news is, is that we have the scripture and we can paint the picture in our mind of the, of the, of the Lamb of God on the cross. We, it, we will fail in, in our imagery, but we can look back through the pictures that the Word paints and know that he died. We can be certain that he died, and we look back and we are thankful for that. We look up and thanksgiving to God, saying, God, we are so unworthy, undeserving to be in your family, to be invited to the table, to enjoy this meal with you. And remember your son, we look up in thankfulness. We, we look within to examine ourselves. And oftentimes we, we twist this in saying that uh, we make it as an I'm not, we're not, I'm, I'm trying to make myself worthy. None of us are worthy to take it. So when we're examining ourselves, we're not examining are we worthy or not, because we're not. Only by the blood of Jesus that we are taking, what we're doing is make sure we're not taking it in an unworthy manner. In a sense in which are there, I've been walking in rebellion, and I'm going to come up here today and make a flippantly of the sacrifice of the side. We'll give you a chance to confess and repent, but we, we examine our own. Or do I need to, as Jesus told the, his disciples or soon-to-be disciples, that if you're at the altar about to give an offering or sacrifice to the Lord, you remember your brother's got something against you, leave the altar and go re- reconcile with your brother. Maybe that's what needs to happen. Before we take it, we need a, there's a reconciliation that needs to happen. We look around in unity. Isn't it a beautiful picture that we... Have, even though most of us, actually I can't say that anymore because of hometown. Is that I would say most of us, all of us grew up here, but I can look around and literally count people who from Arizona or California, they were all over the place. But anyway, isn't it Alabama? Isn't it crazy? Alabama. Isn't it crazy? The fact that what unites us is the blood of the Son of God. That's it. That's a beautiful thing. So we look around. We may not look the same. We have different jobs. We may not have the same hobbies. But we have one Lord and one spirit. There's one salvation. And we all have been beneficiaries of that. <laughs> Man, that's, that's too good. But not only that, we look forward in confident hope because there will be a day. Jesus told his disciples, I will not eat of this meal again until I do it with you in glory. That there is a marriage supper of the lamb. That this is just an appetizer for the meal to be taken. This is just something that whets our appetites just enough to keep us longing for glory, for longing for heaven, longing for his return. So when we partake in it, yes, we're looking back, in, around, up, down, or whatever. We're looking ahead to his return and him calling us home. I'm going to pray. And then, uh, deacons, you go ahead and come down. Uh, Got them on the side and one in the middle, whoever's take middle. And so I'm going to pray, and after I pray, we can stand, and uh, the deacons will be down here. Um, Michael, can I see one of those? I'm just going to give you a...
if you have never done this before. Oh, these are the new COVID cups. I got to start calling them COVID. Is that like sacrilegious to call the Anyway, the, the wafer is on the bottom, and then you got to tear up top for the, for the juice. Uh, anyway, I'm going to pray in a moment, and after I get done praying, we're all going to stand, and you move forward at your own time. So maybe there is repentance, there's a confession, there's some dealing. Like right now, as I'm talking, the Holy Spirit's already like, is what? He's indwelling us all, and he convicts us of sin. We're certain of that. Uh, maybe you need to do business with the Lord, as a Southern Baptist preacher would say. Maybe you need to reconcile with a brother or a sister. Maybe there's something that's going on that you just need to let the Lord handle. But whenever you're ready, you can set up and move forward and get uh, the cup. And then go back to your seat. We all take it together. And so you go back to your seat and hang out. And whenever I feel like everybody's got their uh, juice and cup, then I'll come back up with take together. Cool? Everybody understand what's going on here? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you that in all of life's uncertainties, there is a sure and firm foundation. That that foundation is the Lord Jesus. God, that we have your spirit as the anchor of our souls. And that we have your word that never returns void, that it lasts and endureth forever. And that we can be certain of things that you have revealed to us through your word. Father, we thank you for a resurrected, alive, seated Jesus soon to return. We thank you for an active, powerful, indwelling, leading spirit. And Father, we thank you for the call to preach the gospel, to build up your church, and to live boldly and faithfully. And God, we thank you that we can be certain that you will do that through us. So God, as we move this time to remember, to anticipate, to reflect, God, we pray that how we take of, the, of your supper, God, that you are honored and glorified. Be with us. Lead us. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can stay.